And as you sit down, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that where it is needed, you would bring the piercing of compunction, of conviction of sin and true repentance so that we might experience your full grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let me begin with a question. How do religious people think about sin? I mean, how do you think about sin? I mean, don't we sometimes think about sin the, the way we think about traffic violations? As a form of disobeying the law, breaking the rules. And sometimes breaking the rules in traffic can be quite serious like fleeing the scene of an accident or drinking while under the influence. I mean, there was even a young man in our church back in Pennsylvania who, who killed a young mother because he was texting while driving. I mean, sometimes breaking the rules can have devastating consequences. But, but other times, well, it just doesn't seem that bad. I mean, it's not that bad to go 10 miles an hour over the speed limit if no one gets hurt, right? And it's not that bad to roll through a stop sign if no one's there. I mean, if we're honest, we think of some traffic violations as almost respectable. I mean, and we're surprised if a policeman pulls us over for going 72 in a 65-mile-an-hour zone. I mean, they're not supposed to do that, are they? I mean, everyone knows that's all right. Hey, isn't, isn't that the way we sometimes think about God's laws? I mean, there are serious sins, like murder and adultery, where people get hurt. And then there are not so serious sins, maybe, maybe even respectable sins, the sins that everybody seems to be doing, like being selfish or snarky or fretting about something. I mean, how, how bad is worrying? I mean, I know the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything, but who does that? Or how about just a little bit of gossip? Or, or, or a little bit of greed? You, you know, wanting more and more of what we have enough of already. Or how about not being quick to listen, slow to speak, or slow to become angry? Wearing clothes that draw just a little bit too much attention to our bodies or, or not reporting all our income on the income tax. Or, or how about closing our eyes to the plight of the poor? Or, or being so in debt that we can't fulfill our biblical obligation to give generously? I, I mean, aren't those sins a, a lot like going 75 or 80 in a 65-mile-an-hour zone? or rolling through a stop sign? Or are they? Now, I think most of us would say that David was a pretty good guy. I mean, as a young man, he stepped forward to, to, to face Goliath in the name of the Lord when no one else would. 
And in time, he became not just a great king of Israel, but the architect of its worship tradition, the great singer of psalms. And from his mind and heart came some of the most eloquent and beautiful poems of faith the world has ever known. I mean, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of? The son of man that you care about? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He he leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness fills the open skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean deep. How priceless is your unfailing love. And not only did this man after God's own heart sing these songs of faith with unparalleled skill and insight, but David, David also practiced what he preached. In Psalm 18, after finally being rescued from the armies of Saul and established as king, he cries out, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I've been blameless before him. Now, I don't think David was perfect, but he was darn good. Especially at this early point in his life. And I dare say, by God's grace, he was better than most of us. And then one day, it happened. I mean, maybe it had been happening for a long time, little by little. But that night out on the balcony, David crossed a line. I mean, he saw a beautiful woman bathing down below him in her house. And he invited her into the palace. And one thing led to another. And before he knew it, they had committed adultery. And Bathsheba conceived. And so David tried to cover it up. I mean, what would you do? He called her husband, his good friend Uriah, back from the battlefield. And after hearing an account of the battle, David suggested that he go home and spend the night with his wife. But Uriah wouldn't do it. I mean, he wouldn't enjoy the comforts of home while his fellow soldiers were suffering far away. He was made of better stuff than that. So David needed to cover his tracks. He needed to save face. He he needed somehow to to avoid a public scandal and and public shame. And so quickly he arranged for Uriah to be killed in battle, making it look like a casualty of war. And then he took Bathsheba into his harem and she became his wife. And the myth of David's righteousness was shattered. Dropped like a plate glass mirror on concrete, splintering into a thousand shimmering pieces. Actually, it took a while for the mirror to drop. I mean, almost a year before God sent Nathan the prophet to point his bony finger at David's agonizing soul and say, you, you are the man. And then the mirror dropped. And out of this soul-shattering experience came Psalm 51. 
I mean, the psalm of all psalms for sinners in the need of God's grace. And for 13 centuries, this psalm was repeated seven times a day in the church. At the conclusion of every monastic service throughout Christendom. And it has been memorized and prayed, cried and sung by God's people in almost every place where the conviction of sin has been deeply felt and God's grace earnestly sought. And commenting on this psalm, which is what I'm about to do, feels a little bit to me like an intrusion. Like bursting into a man's bedroom as he's pouring out his soul before God. You see, I've been David. I've prayed these kinds of prayers. And I've been with people who were crying out like David in my presence as their pastor. I mean, this is intimate, private, sacred ground. But the amazing thing is that David prayed this prayer. He sang this song in public. He offered it as a sacrifice to God, the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart in public worship. So so as we ponder these words, I want you, you to imagine yourself saying these things to God, yes, but saying them in the presence of people or at least a person who knows what you have done. I mean, put yourself in David's place. Try to feel what he felt because David is confessing his sin both before God and before God's people. And as he suggests in verse 13, he's teaching sinners like you and me how to turn back to God. And the first thing I want you to notice is that when David turns back to God, he makes no excuses. I have sinned, he says in verse 4. I have done what is evil in your sight. You are justified. You are right when you judge me. And God did judge David. I mean, there there were consequences, awful consequences for what he did. I mean, the child who was conceived in this adulterous union died. And God also made it clear to David that because of his sin, bloodshed would never depart from his house. And so David watched not only this baby die, but other sons as well. I mean, Amnon was killed by Absalom because he raped Absalom's sister. And Absalom himself was slain in the battle where he was trying to wrest control of the kingdom from his father David. And then at the very end of David's life, he was not allowed to fulfill one of his greatest dreams, to build the temple to God. Because the prophet said that David was a man of bloodshed. So yes, God judged David. But but David didn't try to to make a deal with God so he could somehow uh, avoid the consequences of his sin. And he made no excuses when he confessed before God and man. And and David could have made excuses. I I mean, he could have tried to blame Bathsheba. I mean, just a little bit like, like Adam did to Eve. He could have said, well, well, what was she doing bathing where I could see her? 
Or maybe, maybe he might have said, I, I really never meant it to go this far, and I certainly didn't want to see Uriah killed. Now, I, I know those are pretty lame excuses, but what excuses do we give? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, God, but they made me so mad. I mean, look at what they did to me. I was just responding. Or, or God, what, what, what do you expect from me? I, I'm lonely. I'm not that strong. The, the temptation was just too great. Or, or God, I, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. Is it really that bad? But David made no excuses. And David did something else as well. He, he didn't limit his confession to the outward sins of murder and adultery. Verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth, integrity in the innermost parts. By implication, he's saying, and when I look down deep inside, that's not what I find. I find lust and greed, pride and, and envy, and the fear of being exposed. You know, there's a danger in reading this psalm, since we know the story behind it. And it's the danger of thinking that the intensity of this confession is justified by the horrible nature of David's sin. I mean, adultery and the murder of a friend. And since we're not guilty of anything like that, well, then this kind of agony of soul must not be required of us not for the little moving violations in our lives, right? But, but that's not how David saw it. I mean, David saw the inner connection between his great sins and all his other sins. And David saw that he didn't just sin. He was a sinner. In fact, it may be that David's great sin his fall off the wall, if you will, shattering his life at midlife into a thousand painful pieces it was something that, that opened his eyes, that, that caused him to see who he really was, that, that he was a sinner from the day that he was born, a sinner before he crossed that line called adultery and murder, a sinner down deep in his soul. I mean, maybe he understood for the first time what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount. That, that he was a sinner the moment he looked at Bathsheba and he wanted to have commit adultery with her. A serious sinner. Because God looks on the heart, not just on the outward actions. So David made no excuses. And David didn't try somehow to separate himself from his sin. He confessed that the real problem, the core problem, was down deep in his own soul. And then David realized and acknowledged the worst thing about his sin. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned, he said to God. Now, strictly speaking, I'm not sure that's a true statement. I mean, from my way of thinking, David sinned against Uriah. And he sinned against Bathsheba as well. 
And David's sin wreaked havoc on his family and on his nation for years to come. But what I think David is getting at is that his deepest offense, his greatest sin, is that he, a child of God, slapped his father in the face. David treated with contempt the, the glorious one who, who had given him everything, his life, his gifts, his family, his kingdom, the, the glorious one who had loved him with an everlasting love and everything else paled in comparison to that offense. You see, the true measure of our sin is not just what we have done, but to whom we have done it. I mean, when you and I hurt someone we dearly love with a word or a look or a gesture, sometimes we catch a glimpse in the expression of their faces or in the emotion of their reactions. How hurtful and therefore how evil our sin, our thought, our mere word, our deed was. And the worst thing about our sin is not that we break God's rules, but that we break God's heart. And the greatest danger of our sin is not that we might suffer some terrible consequences, but that we are in danger of losing the most precious of relationships. So David cries out at the heart of this confession. Oh God, do not cast me away from your presence. Please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And his cry is a cry for mercy, not justice. Do not do to me what I deserve. I mean, don't take your kingdom from me, though I certainly deserve it. Don't take my life from me, though the law requires it. And above all else, don't take yourself from me, because your love means more to me than my very life. Please blot out my transgressions. Somehow erase them from your record. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin deep within. But, but stop and think about what David is asking for. I mean, David is asking to be forgiven for murder, to, to be forgiven for shattering a young family's life, the family of a faithful friend. I mean, David is being asked to be cleansed from the stain of being a selfish, lustful, conniving, greedy, powerful, and violent man. And he's asking to be forgiven all those things, even though he has committed these sins after a lifetime of being loved and cared for by God, of being given everything that a man could desire. I mean, there is no good reason in the world why God should forgive David or Paul, who murdered God's people or you and me for that matter. I mean, David is the tax collector in Jesus' parable, 
falling down in the temple precincts, beating his chest over and over and crying out loud, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And David, David knows what is at stake. He knows he could lose everything, that he should lose everything. But because he has nothing he can offer in exchange for God's mercy. I mean, that's why I think it really doesn't matter to David that the whole world is going to know what he has done. That the whole world is going to hear his confession. Because right now, the only thing that counts to him is that God will forgive him, that, that God will wash him clean, that God won't leave him. <clears throat> and may I suggest <clears throat> that until a person finds himself in that place where all he can do is cry out for mercy, I'm not sure he quite understands the gospel. See, the gospel is the good news that God will forgive our sins against him, whatever they are. Not because we deserve to be forgiven, and not because we can make excuses, or even point to other acts of righteousness that will balance out our sins. I mean, not even because we promise to be good from this point forward, but only because God in his great compassion and unfailing love has offered us forgiveness in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of his beloved son. Now, I know David wrote this psalm long before Jesus was ever born, but not before Jesus was prefigured in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And not before his death for sin was foreseen in the mind and heart of the triune God. And so in verse 7, David cries out, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was the plant used to wipe the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of the Hebrew houses. When God rescued his people from the angel of death and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And hyssop was also the plant used to sprinkle sacrificial blood over lepers who had been healed and to declare them clean. So to be washed in hyssop is a picture of receiving the benefits of bloody sacrifice. It is to be washed clean from the leprosy of sin and saved from the angel of death by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, in Psalm 51, we have the gospel in an Old Testament form. And we're invited to join with David and to cry out together, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, wash me in the blood of sacrifice, in the sacrifice of Jesus for my sin, and I will be whiter than snow. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. My sins are great, and they cling to the core of my being. But you, you can forgive me. Have mercy. 
So have you ever cried that cry? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Have you acknowledged the stain of sin down deep in your own soul and pleaded with the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? Because if not, you are under the judgment of God. May this day be the day so that you can receive this communion meal in faith. But before you receive this meal, please notice that the psalm is not quite finished. Because David doesn't just ask for forgiveness. He asks for more. And he asks for more because he realizes how much more he needs. You see the gospel? The gospel is not just the good news that, that our sins can be forgiven, that, that we can be washed clean in the baptism of Jesus and granted life eternal. No, that the gospel is the good news that God sent his son into the world to save the world, to, to set us free, not just from the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God, but, but also to set us free from sin's destructive power and from sin's deadly presence in our lives. And the work of the gospel is not complete until his kingdom comes and his will is done in, on earth as it is in heaven, until we finally become what we were created to be image bearers of the living God, filled with his spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control. So David prays in verse 10, please create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit from this point forth to sustain me. It was a day like any other day. And Jesus was sitting down on a hillside and people had gathered round him as they often did. I mean, ordinary people, religious people like you and me, people with pain, in their lives, physical pain, emotional pain, the, the pain of loved ones lost, of relationships broken, the, the pain of regret and lost opportunity, the pain of failure and guilt, the, the pain of, of lives and, and a world filled with sin. And turning to these very people, Jesus began to preach what became his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And right at the very beginning of this sermon, he said, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, how fortunate, how privileged, how favored by God are people who weep who grieve, who cover their bed with tears, as the psalmist said. <laughs> and we say, what? I mean, wh what are you talking about, Jesus? What in the world do you mean? 
Well, let me tell you what Jesus did not mean. He, he did not mean that mourning in and of itself is a blessed experience. I mean, mourning, weeping, grieving it is a miserable experience. It's the very experience of misery. But listen to Jesus finish the sentence. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I have a friend. <laughs> At least he was a friend. He was the dearest of friends. And years ago, this friend of mine abandoned his wife and his newborn child and turned from his God. And I pleaded with him. I reasoned with him. I cried out to God for him. But he turned and went the other way and walked into a wasteland, a wasteland that he's been in for years. And I cried. I wept. I mean, not just once, but often and for years. Jesus wants us to weep. Not because pain is a pleasant experience or that God takes some pleasure in our pain, but because God knows that mourning is the only proper response to the brokenness that sin creates in our lives and in our world. And God also knows that mourning puts us in a place where God can make it right, where he can bring us true and lasting comfort. I mean, you, you know the shortest verse in the Bible, don't you? In John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. And when that happened, Jesus was standing in front of the grave of a very dear friend. And he was surrounded by people weeping, the man's two sisters and other loved ones. Why do you think Jesus was weeping? I mean, if you know the story, you know that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why weep? Well, I think Jesus was weeping because he knew the truth. He knew the truth about death. He knew where death came from, and he knew where death would lead. He knew that death and everything that smells of death, all disease, all despair, all destruction, entered the world through the gateway of human sin. And Jesus knew the depth of human misery which sin brought into the world, and it would continue to bring. And Jesus also knew that someday soon he would bear in his body and soul the miserable agony of sin and death on the cross in order to break its hold over human life. And so Jesus wept. Jesus wept for Lazarus. He wept for Mary and Martha. But, but I also believe that Jesus looked down through the course of human history, and he wept for you and me. He wept for anyone and everyone who would ever suffer the pain of sin and death in this broken and fallen world. But Jesus did more than weep. You know, sometimes weeping is all we can do. We can weep and cry out for mercy, for healing and for forgiveness and for help in times of trouble. 
But Jesus stepped forward and he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And with the smell of death in the air, a dead man walked out of the grave. Now, it just takes a moment's thought to, to realize that Lazarus was destined to die again. I mean, in a few short years, he would be back in that grave. So this miracle could not have been performed simply to lengthen Lazarus's earthly life. No, this miracle was done to teach the people standing there and to teach all of us who live in the valley of the shadow of death something earth-shattering about sin and death. That there is something, someone, more powerful than sin and death. Someone who actually holds sin and death in his hands. I mean, someone who can say, someone who has said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he also said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted when their sins are forgiven. They shall be comforted because the power of sin and death has been defeated by Jesus Christ our Lord. And they shall be comforted when Jesus sends his spirit into our lives to create in us a new heart, a pure heart, a willing spirit, and we shall be comforted someday soon when Jesus comes again and personally wipes away every tear from our eyes and finally banishes sin and death from his good world. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And until that day, may we mourn for our sins and the sins of this world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, teach us to mourn, to confess, give us the gift of tears so that you might set us free, free from the love of sin, free from the power of sin, free from the presence of sin, free from all of its consequences, but most of all, free to be in your presence, filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.